Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Elaine and Diane are certified coaches with personal experience raising children with challenges such as ADHD, anxiety, and more, and extensive experience in guiding parents to raise their complex kids with confidence and calm. On the podcast, Elaine and Diane interview experts, bringing you cutting-edge information about your child's challenges, teach you real-life strategies to create lasting change, and demonstrate how coaching can guide you to parent your complex kids one conversation at a time. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation of the Parenting with Impact podcast. Hi, it's Elaine and Diane. You get just us today. And today we're going to talk about a really, 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 really important issue and, and one that's very close to home for me and my family, which is really ADHD and depression and all the other stuff that comes with ADHD and depression, which yeah. might mean anxiety or all kinds of other things. So how do well, we want so to start? So if you're listening to this, you probably have some kind of connection to this, um, this topic. I wonder if it makes sense, Elaine, to start with kind of how we typically see this, like, where does this show up? When, what are the most common things that themes that we see when people are talking about ADHD and depression? Okay. So here's what's coming up as I'm hearing you just say that is let's frame it, right? So most of you you listening, if you're in our community, you have some experience with, you know, what ADHD is. It's manifest by a lot of different areas of of executive function, challenges with attention, emotional regulation, um, getting energy management, memory, all kinds of things. And what happens in this realm of ADHD and other mental health conditions is that there's a lot of confusion about what's underlying, what's causing the behavior that people are struggling with. And so part of what gets confusing, what makes these really difficult diagnoses is that when you have, let's just look at kids, a kid who manifests with some of these symptoms, they could be caused by attention deficit, ADHD, but they could also be caused by anxiety and they could also be caused by depression. So if we look at it from that angle first, part of what's challenging about these differential diagnoses is that a lot of the symptoms, the the challenges that are faced with them overlap or are the same, really. Right, well, and so that's the first part is that it's this sort of kind of knowing what's going on in the first place, right? So it's just sort of, right. if you have a, so there's two parts. So it's what, knowing what's going on in the first place. And the other piece just at a high level is that sometimes one is causative, is that the right word of the other, right? So you might have ADHD that goes unmanaged or undiagnosed, which creates anxiety because the, the child or the adult isn't performing to the level that they expect that they should or want to be able to. And that can create anxiety that can even go further than that. So talk about that a little bit. Well, and so the way I've always said it very succinctly is if you can't get yourself to do what the world expects you to do, whether you're a kid or an adult, and ADHD means I'm not able to execute on the things that I would like to be able to do, it's going to make you anxious. 
And over time, that anxiety is going to lead to depression if you don't manage that. So part of what we're saying is all of these things overlap. And sometimes untreated, unmanaged ADHD can cause anxiety and or depression or a combination. And sometimes the depression or the anxiety may be separate from the ADHD. Or sometimes the depression can cause symptoms that look like ADHD. Right. Right. So it's really, it's understanding. This is why we often talk about, we have to understand on the one hand, the diagnosis matters a lot when it comes to medication treatment. But when it comes to behavior management, the diagnosis isn't as important sometimes as really looking at what are the challenges, what are the thoughts and feelings behind the challenges, and how can we support people in, in managing them and addressing them. Well, so does it make sense to talk about the differences between anxiety and depression particularly, or is it really that you've got to go to a professional to know which one you're dealing with? I mean, is it helpful to talk about how they manifest differently? I think yes and yes. <laughs> like, all right, so in my family, we have a lot of, you know, you guys have heard me describe it as ADHD plus plus family of five, now six. And everyone in my family has different diagnoses with their ADHD. So one's got ADHD and anxiety and dyslexia. Another's got ADHD and anxiety and depression. Another one's got ADHD and depression and maybe a little anxiety. And, you know, I had what we thought was anxiety for years that turned out it was mostly ADHD. And so, again, these things, they often travel together. And so it, from a medication perspective, if you're trying to treat with medication, it really does make a big difference what the underlying cause is or what issue you're trying to treat medically. And so you might start with a general practitioner with that. And if it's complicated or you've got a lot of coexisting conditions, you may benefit from being with a specialist, whether it's a psychiatrist or a practitioner who specializes in these more complex cases. I might actually say that a little bit stronger because, it, and I know that there are plenty of amazing primary care physicians out there. And if you have a child who's struggling with both anxiety and ADHD, or you're noticing anxiety, struggling with anxiety, you really want somebody who can help you figure out who's on first and which is on first, because there's a a clear distinction in terms of kid-specific almost in terms of how to treat it, particularly if you're looking at medication. And so- For sure. I mean, when I think about the years when And I guess I qualify it, Diane, because not everybody has a specialist available to them. That's true. And so that's where, like, if if you can go to the specialist and you've got a complex condition situation, then you really want to do that. But what you're pointing to, I think, is really important. So right now we're talking about medical treatment. In a little while, we're going to talk about some other stuff, right? So, but right now we're talking about medical treatment. And I remember, right, having this conversation with with one of my kids' psychiatrists about, okay, right now the lead issue is the anxiety. So we're going to try to help manage the anxiety first because that's kind of compounding everything else. But sometimes there were times where, okay, the anxiety wasn't so bad, but the ADHD was the lead issue. And so that needed to be the medication that we were focusing on. Yes, a lot of our kids, a lot of us as adults end up on multiple medications because we are treating a number of different factors. And so the complexity of that is really important to have somebody who really understands it and specializes. Well, and even at the beginning, right, it's a sort of yes in the lead at different phases. But, you know, we have, I have one person in my family that has both ADHD and anxiety. And at first we thought it was just ADHD. We were treating it just for ADHD. 
the anxiety started getting worse. And so the psychiatrist had to say, okay, so let's pause for a second. Let's see what happens. Took them off the ADHD meds, tried them just on anxiety meds, tried them on both. I mean, just this sort of mismatch of what's really going on here. And so it's really important to have a prescribing partner that gets both, gets the interplay. And I want to say, like, as we say this all the time, that you feel confident and has to have a good relationship with. So it has to be somebody that you can have conversations with about what you're noticing at home is open to, you know, and asking for feedback about what you're noticing, when you're noticing it, that sort of stuff, so that you're iteratively figuring out what's really going on from a diagnostic perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's one of the most important things. So it doesn't matter as much if they're a specialist or a general practitioner, if they're really working with you and understanding what's going on and, and helping prescribe based on that. I'm thinking that the example you're using, one of my kids who has ADHD and anxiety, you know, sometimes the research is still not as clear as, as I think it will be in, in the future. But for some people with anxiety, the ADHD stimulants can, can amp up the anxiety a little bit. And so we were testing with one kid to see whether they could tolerate stimulants to manage the ADHD because that was, you know, high school, we needed that. And so the doctor suggested chocolate covered coffee beans mm-hmm. as a way as a to test. just see if, if the kid could respond, was going to respond to stimulants positively or negatively. And that allowed us to, to then make some decisions about medication moving forward. So that's, that's a great example of a, of a provider that was really working with us to help us addressed what was the most important issue for that child at that time that needed to be addressed. So we talked about the medical management piece of it. Let's talk about the kind of how it looks different and kind of how you know even when and how and where to involve the medical practitioner because there's that step before that, which is how would I know if it's not just ADHD or if it's not just, if it's anxiety, if it's moved into depression. I mean, you're talking about how they- one The sequence of it. Yeah. So it's a great, great question. And, you know, as we were talking about how to have this conversation, I feel like it's really important to talk about ADHD and depression. And I think we don't talk about it enough because, you know, in my family, it showed up really early. It showed up really young, much younger than in hindsight. I look back and I realize how young it really was that it showed up in some of my kids and in my, my spouse. And the thing about depression is that it's not about being sad mm-hmm. or feeling sad, but it's, it's about still feeling bad or sad or hopeless or whatever that feeling is, even when things are good around you, even when you have love and positivity, it's, it's sort of being in that, in that space and just feeling listless or lost or hopeless or pointless or whatever, it, whatever that feeling is, even when, when there's no reason to. So, you know, we want to talk about the difference between chronic depression, which is kind of a, a lifelong living with a, a mind that's challenged with depression, a mental illness of depression, and acute or situational depression, which is caused by something. And that could go on for months, and that could still need support to, to manage the depression, but it's, it's a different kind of depression. When I get depressed because something happened that pushes me in that direction, whether it's unmanaged ADHD or, you know, the loss of a family member or, you know, something, they both need to be managed, but it's a different kind of depression than a chronic depression. What's yeah, coming up? No, I see well, your face. Yeah, no, the face I was making was I was thinking about the, the phrase you said, because it's like this sort of 
without an apparent reason to. And I think that one of the things that I want to put a plug in here for is as parents, a lot of times our kids so internalize what's going on for them. They may be completely stressed out about something that's going on at school or in a relationship or whatever else. They may not be saying anything to you about it. And so to you, you're like, well, this kid has no reason to be so listless or lethargic, right? It's just sort of, so that's one piece of it is this sort of keeping the channels of communication open as much as you can, creating an environment where they can tell you as much as they can. And then also knowing, you know, what behaviors, right? It's just sort of, you have, may have a kid that their depression looks like playing video games all night because they're like masking and hiding and, you know, avoiding, or it may be that they're laying in their room, you know, listening to music all the time or what, whatever it looks like, right? So, so let's talk about how depression manifests because I think this is really important because we have this notion that depression is being sad, is being depressed. Sometimes depression looks really angry. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, particularly with teenagers, but I have certainly seen it and he would hear me say it and, and agree with me with my spouse. Like sometimes the depression manifests as reactive angry, aggressive, defensive. So that may look like it's just a rude behavior, but sometimes that is another way that that depression is manifest. It's not just sadness. It's also anger, frustration, intolerance. That kind of a, a reactive behavior can also be a manifestation of, of depression. Well, that kind of makes me go, it's like, so how do you know when it how do you know when it's more than just, you know, because all of those things you just described, reactive behaviors are, you know, stress produced by stress or they're produced by overwhelm or they're produced by emotion management challenges of ADHD. I mean, it's like all of those things. So how do you know when it's bigger than a bread box? I don't know how else to say well, that. Well, I think you know? part of it has to do with duration. How long is it lasting? Right. So if you're dealing with a kid who's having a rough time with a a patch of kids at school and is reactive or defensive or struggling with a class and, you know, the semester's over and it's over or, you know, like if it starts and then stops, that's very different from when it's ongoing. And if if they're continuing to struggle, if, if mood is is continuing to be a challenge, getting elevated to get to do things, being able to wake up or get myself going. And I don't mean starting to do my homework because I don't want to do it, but I don't even care about my homework, right? Not caring about things is a sign of depression. There's a couple of good articles on the site that I'll make sure we put in the um, show notes that I went to Dr. Michael Banoff and had him, you know, articulate for us what exactly are the symptoms that we should be watching out for. And we've got some pieces for if you're concerned that there's depression, what to look for and where to go. So we'll direct you to those in the show notes. But some of the things are, you know, if people stop being interested in things that they were interested before, so their behaviors change, that could be a sign that there's depression coming on. If their friends change dramatically, that can be a sign that there's something going on. That can also be a sign. I mean, that could be a lot of things, especially in middle school and high school. Right. So that every time a kid changes friends, that doesn't mean it's depression. But if, it, if it's compounded by a, an energy or mood change of friends, uh, more secrecy, more privacy, 
those kinds of things can be some indicators of depression. When we've got, particularly with not just girls, actually nowadays, more girls and boys, I guess, with, with all kids, um, issues around body dysmorphia, concern if a kid's looking too skinny or too fat or feeling like they're looking too skinny or too fat or talking about it a lot or avoiding food, eating disorders are a symptom of both depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and something to watch out for. Well, um, and so there, there's a couple directions I want to go. I guess the you were talking before about behaviors versus medication. We just talked about how to know what's going on. But I mean, again, it's sort of when is it bigger than a bread box? And how do you even, these are kids who might not want to get help or might not know that they're struggling or what, you know, how do you step into it as a parent? So before we answer that, because it's a great question, what I want to go is say, so we've talked about body issues and eating disorders. We haven't really talked about suicidal ideation. And I think that's really important to talk about is kids who are feeling so hopeless that they don't feel that there's a reason to live, whether they are expressing it to you or expressing it to friends or whether they have considered whether they might want to take their life or not. It is significantly more common than people realize suicidal ideation. And it's something to be taken really seriously, whether you've got, and I've heard it from parents of kids as young as as eight and nine years old, more common in teenagers, of course. But when there's a sense of hopelessness, it can lead to all kinds of dangerous and risk-taking behaviors, whether it's cutting suicidal ideation or or suicide attempts or thoughts, eating disorders, um, aggressive behavior, bullying. Um, It can happen from being bullied. So so a lot of these things... Well, and I was just going to say, not those don't all mean that your kid is depressed or, or feeling suicidal. I mean, you may have a kid who's crying yeah. and they may not at all be suicidal or you may have, you know, all of these things. Again, it's a sort of you're looking for signals to try to find a way to dig deeper and not coming to a conclusion based on a behavior is kind of what I'm what I'm getting. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, that's great. And, you know, and then to go to the question you were just starting to ask for us to play with is, I think what's most important is communication and relationship. Like, how do we know? We know by being in relationship with our kids, by staying connected to them, by keeping an open openness in the family. I'm a big believer in not hiding topics, like talking to kids about about when we hear about suicide in the media or other people to let them know that we understand that's a risk in the world and that we're we're safe places for them to talk about it. And, you know, a lot of people are afraid to bring it up because you don't want to give them the idea. Trust me, you're not the one giving them the idea. idea. But if you give them a safe place to talk about it, a place like, you know, I have a kid who struggled with severe depression and part of the reason I know that that person is alive now as a young adult is because we had some very direct conversations about when this is happening, will you agree to talk to me about it? Will you agree to seek help? Will you like, we were very overt about it. And my husband struggled a lot with depression. He was very direct and had direct conversations with the kids so that there was not only kind of a direct safety plan, which is this is what I'll agree to do if I'm feeling or thinking this way, but there was an environment that made it okay to say, I'm not feeling safe right now. I need some help. Well, and I think this this brings up one of the big challenges in this world. If you've got a kid with depression, anxiety, you know, whichever both is a lot of times as a parent, you feel like you're like almost walking on eggshells or you don't want to push too hard or you don't want to, you know, it's a sort of, 
let's talk about that a minute because it's so important to have these agreements in place. I've used the term safety agreement with some of Mm -hmm. my parents who have kids who have suicidal challenges and tendencies. I think the question is, how do you push enough but not feel like you're, oh my gosh, I'm going to say something to this kid and I'm going to push him over the deep end. I mean, that's a scary thing that happens a lot for us as parents. So we're talking about walking on eggshells and, you know, the importance of creating an environment that allows us to have an openness, open conversation with our kids. And as I say, there's a lot of articles on the website. We'll pull some stuff for the show notes. I think what's important for this part of the conversation, Diane, is, you know, when parents feel like we're walking on eggshells, we need to assess when we're walking on eggshells because we don't want to deal with the explosion or the behavior, or are we walking on eggshells because we're afraid of pushing them over a ledge? Yeah, they are very different. And, and as you're talking about that, we're talking about, so let's go back to the fact that we're talking about ADHD and depression and anxiety or ADHD and depression particularly. Right. And what I hear a lot is, you know, parents who have kids with ADHD, executive function challenges, they're trying to challenge their kids to be more independent or to do more or to take more responsibility or to whatever it is. And when depression or anxiety shows up, all of a sudden it's this sort of, oh my gosh, I don't want to push my kid because I'm afraid that something they might cut, or I'm afraid that they, you know, they've had suicidal ideation that I might trigger a suicidal episode. I mean, all those sorts of things come up and it may not have anything to do with the depression or the anxiety, but it has to do with their challenges with ADHD. And so how do we help parents Mm -hmm. to hold their kids accountable as much as they can stretch their kids? We always talk about meeting them where they are and raising the bar from there. What does raising the bar look like when you've got a kid who's struggling with depression and anxiety? Well, and there are so many places we could go with this. One of the things is to remember that when we're dealing with executive function issues, with ADHD, we're dealing with executive function issues. When we're dealing with depression and or anxiety, we're dealing with mood issues. And so, you know, you're not going to manage ADHD by sending a kid to a therapist, but you are going to manage anxiety and and depression by engaging in therapy if, if you can invite a kid to the conversation. And the word that came up for me as you were asking that question, Diane, was invitation, was to keep inviting our kids to be part of the problem solving and part of their own success and solution. And for some of our kids, their success may not be getting through a class. For some of them, their success may be getting up and going to school that day. And so really, as you say, meeting them where they are and understanding, showing them that we understand with compassionate how hard it is for them, whatever it is, allows them to trust us to work with them to try to raise the bar. And for some of them, if they're really dealing with depression, what's important may not be raising the bar to achieve something. It may be helping them just figure out how to get through day by day and navigate depression which is very different from achieving in school, right? Well, yeah, it is. And, and I mean, the phrase baby steps pops in. And the other part of this is that a lot of times these kids don't want to get help. So even finding a way to hold them accountable to going to a therapist, I mean, I've got a client right now who, you know, they, they got them into the car and then the kid's like, I am not going in, right? It's just sort of, they're like, nope, that's it. I'm, that's all of it, right? And it's just sort of, and getting them into the car and getting them to go, was the baby step. And so maybe next time you try to go a little bit further, but you're 
we're talking about that fine line between finding a place to hold our kids accountable, but doing it in a way that feels like we're honoring their struggles. And I, and I think maybe we could model some of the language yeah. here, Elaine, because I think that that's the hard piece is this sort of, I get how hard this is for you and it's not okay to do nothing. We've got to figure out what action is realistic and try for something. And I don't want to push you too hard. And I can't in good conscience sit here and watch you slowly, you know, crash is kind of what the language well, that I is coming up for me. Where, where do you go with that? I think you have to be careful because I think that that language could work better with anxiety and not so well with depression. Yeah. Right. And so it's about, again, it's about meeting them where they are and inviting them to be in a collaborative conversation with you about managing it at all. Yeah. And some days managing it is, you got up and you ate, you ate breakfast today. Awesome. Well done. Right. And some days, but, but what you started with that I think is so important is, is to acknowledge what their experience is. We teach a strategy called ACE, right? And mm-hmm. it's a great one for us to link to acknowledge their experience with compassion. I get that this is hard for you. I can't imagine what it must feel like to be where you are right now, dealing with what you're dealing with. And I'm so sorry you're dealing with it. And I'm here with you and I'm going to support you through however I can in whatever way I can. And I am confident we're going to help you through this and you're going to achieve. There's going to be a bright on the other side. And, you know, I'm going to be with you through the darkness to get to that brightness. You know, I recently had been on a trip and I came back and I saw my husband and he was starting to feel some depression. And, you know, one of the things that I said to him was, you know, that the thing that we know is that it does always get better. It takes some time to get better, but it always gets better. The challenge with kids with depression is they don't have enough experience yet to know that Mm -hmm. and to be able to really trust that. And so sometimes we have to know it for them until they're ready to know it for themselves. So to say some, the language like that may be something like, I get this is really hard and I know you don't, it might even be hard for you to believe you're not always going to feel this way. And I know that you're not because I know either you've done it before or I've seen other people get through it. And it's okay if you don't even believe that yet, I'm going to believe that for you and hold that for you and support you in getting there. So there's something really about deeply acknowledging their experience with compassion that I think is so important for them. And and it's often missed because we kind of get a diagnosis and we go, okay, let's fix this. Let's take care of it. And depression is the kind of diagnosis that you really have to slowly glide into and glide out of. It's not a fix. It's a shift, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, it's just, it feels like there's this layer of trust that you have to build, right? This is sort of in rapport Mm. and this sort of, I really get it. And then I guess the next question is, it's like you, you want to, you do want to challenge them to, to do something, even if it's just getting up in the morning. I mean, what does that language sound like that feels inspiring and not pressuring, right? I think the point, and I go back to that term invitation, is you want to invite them to what's one thing that you can envision. So this is when it's really important for us not to give them the solution. You just need to get up and go to school. You just need to eat your breakfast. You just need to pray, right, is to really invite them to what's one thing you can imagine that you might try to do or set a goal to do tomorrow. What's one thing that you want to try to commit to? If we go back to, we always do well when we ask for kids, what's in it for you? What's the value to you? What's important to you? 
And so helping them identify, you know, as my kid will often say, I'm out of spoons today, mom, I'm done. I've got no more spoons to give. Yeah. And so acknowledging when they're out of spoons, like, okay, what, what, what replenishes that spoon drawer for you Um, and to help them identify it instead of giving them the solutions. Well, and I think we want to take it a step further, which is, you know, there's going to be parents who say, well, my kid says I can't do anything. You know, it's sort of, they're, they're just literally in a stuck place or the situation where they say, yeah, I'm going to try this tomorrow. And then they're not successful, right? It's this sort of, Mm-hmm. Let's take it that next level, because I think that invitations are great when they work. And when they don't, a lot of times we get stuck. So it, let's use a concrete example. I am going to, I'm going to start that project tomorrow, that school project. You might want to break it down with them. It's like, okay, if, if that's your commitment, we'll set you up for success to do that. What kinds of things have helped you get started on something before? So it's not just letting them commit to do something, but it's problem solving with them around what will help them be successful in doing that. Hmm. And what, what do they want to do to help? Maybe it's about helping them identify their motivators making sure that they're setting an incremental step that's a small enough step to find some success because, you know, you hear us say this all the time, success breeds success. So it's really important to help them get, we often say about kids, particularly when they're struggling with depression, this kid needs a win. So let's help them find a win and help them find something that feels like a win for them, no matter how little it is because well, that's and, where it's going to build. Well, and what you were saying, you were saying like start on a project. I mean, if, if I want to be really cautious here because if you have a kid who's just really even having a hard time getting out of bed, trying to get them to just start on a project, you know, it, it's a sort of a, I have a client whose kid shut down. He had a big project for, I don't know, science, history, something. And it just kind of shoved him into this sort of, I can't even get out of bed in the morning. I'm not, I don't want to go to school. Yeah. I don't want to do anything, right? It's just sort of, and if you're pushing to, hey, just start the project, just do a little bit of the project. And the project is actually what's shutting them down, deflecting and encouraging them to do other things, getting their body moving, Correct. getting their brain moving, those sorts of things could be more effective than trying to continue to harp on the thing that is what's really shoving them into the anxiety or the depression. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely true. I was choosing that as something that the kid would have chosen as what they want to do, Got it. not something we're telling them to do. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it may be that sometimes it's just like, let's put this away now. Let's stop this now. Let's go do something else because this isn't helping. And when you're shutting down and when you can see your kids shutting down, it's really important to stop and pull back and do something that's more nourishing to whether it's, you know, connection or nutrition or, you know, whatever that is. Sometimes that may mean some stuff's not going to get done. For some period and of time. That's, that's what it is to live with depression is sometimes you go through periods where all you can get done is getting up and breathing and living another day and without hurting yourself or someone else. And that's a hard thing to say, y'all, but let me be honest it's really hard to live with depression. And as someone who doesn't suffer from it myself for the most part, but whose family members do, I can tell you when I have those rare times, and it's rare for me because my issues are more anxiety and ADHD. When I have those rare times where I am feeling low and depressed, and then I think about what it must be like for them to think to live that way all the time. 
It really reminds me to connect to the compassion. It reminds me how hard it is for them to be them sometimes. And, you know, I learned early on with one of my kids, they kind of do a lot of dark stuff and horror stuff. And, and it used to be I was worried about it. And then I realized that was their outlet. That's how they were getting the dark thoughts out. And so I wasn't trying to shut it down or close it off anymore, but I was giving them a safe space to express it. And I think that's the piece we really need to understand about depression in particular is that it's, it's dark and it's lonely and it's isolating and it's scary and it's hard and it's real. Yeah. So we talked about a lot of things and we could, I know we could talk about this for another hour, but I think we're, yeah. we're getting close to time. Need, what did we yeah. forget to talk about? We've talked about coexisting conditions. We've talked about sometimes they're separate conditions and sometimes they kind of lead into each other. I think we've talked about sometimes it's a chronic condition, sometimes it's situational. We've talked a little bit about safety agreements, which I think is super important. You know, we're going to send you some resources on, on the show notes in terms of where to go for help. If you have a concern that you have a child who is struggling with depression, or anxiety, we really encourage you to seek help, seek support. If you're not sure and you're in our community, you know, you can talk to us and we'll help guide you to where you need to go if we're not the people to support you. But you don't have to do this alone. I think that's the most important message. And in fact, it, this is when it takes a village more than ever. Is You're sometimes not the best ideal person for your kid to talk to about some of these issues. They may need someone else to talk to. Well, Elaine, let me just jump in. You may be the one to get them there. (laughs) Yeah, so there's two parts of this, right? So there is absolutely getting help for your kid, and and it may not be you that is the best one suited for that. And and this is hard stuff. And so, parent, you get help for you because this is the place where it's this sort of sticky point of, I don't want to push. I do want to push. I'm scared. I mean, this is scary stuff when you're observing someone in this state and don't do it alone, you know, and get help from you yeah. that, that may be independent from help from your kid, but it's really just focused on supporting you through this journey because it's hard. Yeah. And I think that, that what I'll say about what we offer with the coach approach is a framework for you to understand it better and learn how to understand your kid. And in it, you may figure out this is a way for, to support you through it, or you may figure out that what you need is, is a different kind of support for yourself and you might need some therapy for yourself. And we'll help you with that because there is a big difference between therapy and coaching and they both have a really valuable role to play, but it's really important to know when you need what, or sometimes you need both. So, and what each of them achieves. Support for yourself can look like a lot of different things. And if you have a question and you're not clear, we're happy to kind of help guide you in, in that. What so, else, guys? I think that's good. This is a hard topic. And again, there's so much here. Go back and listen again because you'll get more the second time you listen. And we appreciate that you're here. We appreciate what you're doing for yourself, for your kids. At the end of the day, it makes the difference. Absolutely. We'll see you on the next one, y'all. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.